Chapters eleven and twelve of Part one The Song of the Lark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Sterner. The Song of the Lark by Willa Siebert Cather. Chapter eleven of Part one. One Saturday, late in June, Thea arrived early for her lesson. She perched herself on the piano stool, a wobbly old-fashioned thing that worked on a creaky screw. She gave Wunsch a side glance, smiling. "'You must not be cross to me today. This is my birthday.' "'So?' he pointed to the keyboard. After the lesson, they went out to join Mrs. Kohler, who had asked Thea to come early so that she could stay and smell the linden bloom. It was one of those still days of intense light, when every particle of mica in the soil flashed like a little mirror, and the glare from the plain below seemed more intense than the rays from above. The sand ridges ran glittering gold out to where the mirage picked them up, shining and streaming like a lake in the tropics. The sky looked like blue lava, forever incapable of clouds, a turquoise bowl that was the lid of the desert. And yet within Mrs. Kohler's green patch the water dripped, the beds had all been hosed, and the air was fresh with rapidly evaporating moisture. The two symmetrical linden trees were the proudest things in the garden. Their sweetness embalmed all the air. At every turn of the paths, whether one went to see the hollyhocks or the bleeding heart, or to look at the purple morning-glories that ran over the bean-poles, wherever one went, the sweetness of the lindens struck one afresh, and one always came back to them. Under the round leaves, where the waxen yellow blossoms hung, bevies of wild bees were buzzing. The tamarisks were still pink, and the flower-beds were doing their best in honor of the linden festival. The white dove-house was shining with a fresh coat of paint, and the pigeons were crooning contentedly, flying down often to drink at the dip from the water-tank. Mrs. Kohler, who was transplanting pansies, came up with her trowel and told Thea it was lucky to have your birthday when the lindens were in bloom, and that she must go and look at the sweet peas. Wunsch accompanied her, and as they walked between the flower-beds, he took Thea's hand. Es flustern und sprechen die Blumen, he muttered. You know that von Heine? Im leuchtenden Sommermorgen. He looked down at Thea and softly pressed her hand. No, I don't know it. What does flustern mean? Flustern? To whisper. You must begin to know such things. That is necessary. How many birthdays? Thirteen. I'm in my teens now, but how can I know words like that? I only know what you say at my lessons. They don't teach German at school. How can I learn? It is always possible to learn when one likes, said Wunsch. His words were peremptory, as usual, but his tone was mild, even confidential. There is always a way, and if some day you are going to sing, it is necessary to know well the German language. Thea stooped over to pick a leaf of rosemary. How did Wunsch know that, when the very roses on her wallpaper had never heard it? 
"'But am I going to?' she asked, still stooping. "'That is for you to say,' returned Wunsch coldly. "'You would better marry some Jacob here, and keep the house for him, maybe? That is as one desires.' Thea flashed up at him a clear, laughing look. "'No, I don't want to do that. You know.' She brushed his coat-sleeve quickly with her yellow head. "'Only how can I learn anything here? It's so far from Denver.' Wunsch's lower lip curled with amusement. Then, as if he suddenly remembered something, he spoke seriously. "'Nothing is far and nothing is near, if one desires. The world is little, people are little. The human life is little.' There is only one big thing, desire. And before it, when it is big, all is little. It brought Columbus across the sea in a little boat, und so weiter. Wunsch made a grimace, took his pupil's hand, and drew her toward the grape arbor. Hereafter I will more speak to you in German. Now sit down and I'll teach you for your birthday that little song. Ask me the words you do not know already. Now. Im leuchtenden Sommermorgen. Thea memorized quickly because she had the power of listening intently. In a few moments she could repeat the eight lines for him. Wunsch nodded encouragingly, and they went out of the arbor into the sunlight again. As they went up and down the gravel paths between the flower beds, the white and yellow butterflies kept darting before them, and the pigeons were washing their pink feet at the drip and crooning in their husky bass. Over and over again, Wunsch made her say the lines to him. You see, it is nothing. If you learn a great many of the leader, you will know the German language already. Weiter nun. He would incline his head gravely and listen. Im leuchtenden Sommermorgen geh ich im Garten herum. Es flüstern und sprechen die Blumen, ich aber ich wandte stumm. Es flüstern und sprechen die Blumen und schauen mitleidig mich an. Sie unserer Schwester nicht böse, du trauriger blasser Mann. In the soft, shining summer morning, I wandered the garden within. The flowers they whispered and murmured, but I, I wandered dumb. The flowers they whisper and murmur, and me with compassion they scan. Oh, be not harsh to our sister, thou sorrowful, death-pale man. Wunsch had noticed before that when his pupil read anything in verse, the character of her voice changed altogether. It was no longer the voice which spoke the speech of Moonstone. It was a soft, rich contralto, and she read quietly. The feeling was in the voice itself, not indicated by emphasis or change of pitch. She repeated the little verses musically, like a song, and the entreaty of the flowers was even softer than the rest, as the shy speech of flowers might be, and she ended with the voice suspended, almost with a rising inflection. It was a nature voice, Wunsch told himself, breathed from the creature and apart from language, like the sound of the wind in the trees, or the murmur of water. What is it the flowers mean? When they ask him not to be harsh to their sister, eh? he asked, looking down at her curiously and wrinkling his dull red forehead. Thea glanced at him in surprise. 
I suppose they are asking him not to be too harsh to his sweetheart, or some girl they remind him of. And why Trauiger Blasserman? They had come back to the grape arbor, and Thea picked out a sunny place on the bench, where a tortoiseshell cat was stretched at full length. She sat down, bending over the cat and teasing his whiskers. Because he had been awake all night thinking about her, wasn't it? Maybe that was why he was up so early. Wunsch shrugged his shoulders. If he think about her all night already, why do you say the flowers remind him? Thea looked up at him in perplexity. A flash of comprehension lit her face, and she smiled eagerly. Oh, I didn't mean remind in that way. I didn't mean they brought her to his mind. I meant it was only when he came out in the morning that she seemed to him like that, like one of the flowers. And before he came out, how did she seem? This time it was Thea who shrugged her shoulders. The warm smile left her face. She lifted her eyebrows in annoyance and looked off at the sand hills. Wunsch persisted. Why you not answer me? Because it would be silly. You are just trying to make me say things. It spoils things to ask questions. Wunsch bowed mockingly. His smile was disagreeable. Suddenly his face grew grave, grew fierce indeed. He pulled himself up from his clumsy stoop and folded his arms. But it is necessary to know if you know some things. Some things cannot be taught. If you do not know in the beginning, you not know in the end. For a singer there must be something inside from the beginning. I shall not be long in this place, maybe. And I like to know. Yes. He ground his heel in the gravel. Yes, when you are barely six, you must know that already. That is the beginning of all things. Der Geist, die Fantasie. It must be in the baby, when it makes its first cry, like der Rhythmus, or it is not to be. You have some voice already, and if in the beginning, when you are with things to play, you know that what you will not tell me, then you can learn to sing, maybe. Wunsch began to pace the arbor, rubbing his hands together. The dark flush of his face had spread up under the iron-gray bristles on his head. He was talking to himself, not to Thea. Insidious power of the linden bloom. Oh, much you can learn, aber nicht die amerikanischen Fräulein. They have nothing inside them, striking his chest with both fists. They are like the ones in Martian, a grinning face and hollow in the insides. Something they can learn, oh yes, maybe, but the secret, what make the rose to red, the sky to blue, the man to love, in der Brust, in der Brust it is, und ohne diesen gibt es keine Kunst, gibt es keine Kunst. He threw up his square hand and shook it, all the fingers apart and wagging. Purple and breathless, he went out of the arbor into the house without saying goodbye. These outbursts frightened Wunsch. They were always harbingers of ill. Thea got her music book and stole quietly out of the garden. She did not go home, but wandered off into the sand dunes where the prickly pear was in blossom, and the green lizards were racing each other in the glittering light. She was shaken by a passionate excitement. She did not altogether understand what Wunsch was talking about, 
and yet, in a way, she knew. She knew, of course, that there was something about her that was different. But it was more like a friendly spirit than like anything that was a part of herself. She thought everything to it, and it answered her. Happiness consisted of that backward and forward movement of herself. The something came and went, she never knew how. Sometimes she hunted for it and could not find it. Again she lifted her eyes from a book, or stepped out of doors, or awakened in the morning, and it was there, under her cheek it usually seemed to be, or over her breast, a kind of warm sureness. And when it was there, everything was more interesting and beautiful, even people. When this companion was with her, she could get the most wonderful things out of Spanish Johnny, or Wunsch, or Dr. Archie. On her thirteenth birthday she wandered for a long while about the sand ridges, picking up crystals and looking into the yellow prickly pear blossoms with their thousand stamens. She looked at the sand hills until she wished she were a sand hill, and yet she knew that she was going to leave them all behind some day. They would be changing all day long, yellow and purple and lavender, and she would not be there. From that day on, she felt there was a secret between her and Wunsch. Together they had lifted a lid, pulled out a drawer, and looked at something. They hid it away and never spoke of what they had seen, but neither of them forgot it. Chapter 12 One July night, when the moon was full, Dr. Archie was coming up from the depot, restless and discontented, wishing there was something to do. He carried his straw hat in his hand, and kept brushing his hair back from his forehead with a purposeless, unsatisfied gesture. After he passed Uncle Billy Beamer's cottonwood grove, the sidewalk ran out of the shadow into the white moonlight, and crossed the sand gully on high posts like a bridge. As the doctor approached this trestle, he saw a white figure and recognized Thea Kronborg. He quickened his pace, and she came to meet him. "'What are you doing out so late, my girl?' he asked, as he took her hand. "'Oh, I don't know. What do people go to bed so early for? I'd like to run along before the houses and screech at them. Isn't it glorious out here?' The young doctor gave a melancholy laugh and pressed her hand. "'Think of it,' Thea snorted impatiently. "'Nobody up but us and the rabbits. I've started up half a dozen of them. Look at that little one down there,' she stooped and pointed. In the gully below them was indeed a little rabbit with a white spot of a tail, crouching down on the sand, quite motionless. It seemed to be lapping up the moonlight like cream. On the other side of the walk, down in the ditch, there was a patch of tall, rank sunflowers, their shaggy leaves white with dust. The moon stood over the cottonwood grove. There was no wind, and no sound but the wheezing of an engine down on the tracks. "'Well, we may as well watch the rabbits,' Dr. Archie sat down on the sidewalk and let his feet hang over the edge. He pulled out a smooth linen handkerchief that smelled of German cologne water. "'Well, how goes it? Working hard? You must know about all Wunsch can teach you by this time.' Thea shook her head. "'Oh, I don't know, Dr. Archie. He's hard to get at, but he's been a real musician in his time.' 
Mother says she believes he's forgotten more than the music teachers down in Denver ever knew. I'm afraid he won't be around here much longer, said Dr. Archie. He's been making a tank of himself lately. He'll be pulling his freight one of these days. That's the way they do, you know. I'll be sorry on your account. He paused and ran his fresh handkerchief over his face. What the deuce are we all here for anyway, Thea? he said abruptly. On earth, you mean? Thea asked in a low voice. Well, primarily, yes, but secondarily, why are we in Moonstone? It isn't as if we'd been born here. You were, but Wunsch wasn't, and I wasn't. I suppose I'm here because I married as soon as I got out of medical school and had to get a quick practice. If you hurry things, you always get left in the end. I don't learn anything here. And as for the people? In my own town in Michigan now, there were people who liked me on my father's account, who had even known my grandfather. That meant something. But here it's all like sand. Blows north one day and south the next. We're all a lot of gamblers without much nerve. Playing for small stakes. The road is the real fact in this country. That has to be. The world has to be got back and forth. But the rest of us are here just because it's the end of a run and the engine has to have a drink. Some day I'll get up and find my hair turning gray and I'll have nothing to show for it. Thea slid closer to him and caught his arm. Oh, no, I won't let you get gray. You've got to stay young for me. I'm getting young now, too. Archie laughed. <laughs> getting? Yes. People aren't young when they're children. Look at Thor now. He's just a little old man. But Gus has a sweetheart, and he's young. <laughs> Something in that, Dr. Archie patted her head and then felt the shape of her skull gently with the tip of his fingers. When you were little, Thea, I used to always be curious about the shape of your head. You seemed to have more inside it than most youngsters. I haven't examined it for a long time. Seems to be the usual shape, but uncommonly hard somehow. What are you going to do with yourself, anyway? I don't know. Honest now? He lifted her chin and looked into her eyes. Thea laughed and edged away from him. You've got something up your sleeve, haven't you? Anything you like. Only don't marry and settle down here without giving yourself a chance, will you? Not much. See, there's another rabbit. That's all right about the rabbits, but I don't want you to get tied up. Remember that. Thea nodded. Be nice to Wunsch, then. I don't know what I'd do if he went away. You've got older friends than Wunsch here, Thea. I know, Thea spoke seriously and looked up at the moon, propping her chin on her hand. But Wunsch is the only one that could teach me what I want to know. I've got to learn to do something well, and that's the thing I can do best. Do you want to be a music teacher? Maybe. But I want to be a good one. I'd like to go to Germany to study some day. Wunsch says that's the best place. The only place you can really learn. Thea hesitated and went on nervously. I've got a book that says so, too. It's called My Musical Memories. It made me want to go to Germany even before Wunsch said anything. Of course it's a secret. You're the first one I've told. Dr. Archie smiled indulgently. That's a long way off. Is that what you've got in your heart, Noodle? 
He put his hand on her hair, but this time she shook him off. "'No, I don't think much about it. But you talk about going, and a body has to have something to go to.' "'That's so,' Dr. Archie sighed. "'You're lucky if you have. Poor Wunsch now. He hasn't.' "'What do such fellows come out here for? "'He's been asking me about my mining stock, about mining towns. "'What would he do in a mining town? "'He wouldn't know a piece of ore if he saw one. "'He's got nothing to sell that a mining town wants to buy. "'Why don't those old fellows stay at home? "'We won't need them for another hundred years. "'An engine wiper can get a job, but a piano player? "'Such people can't make good.' My grandfather Alstrom was a musician, and he made good. Dr. Archie chuckled. Oh, a Swede can make good anywhere, at anything. You've got that in your favor, miss. Come, you must be getting home. Thea rose. Yes, I used to be ashamed of being a Swede, but I'm not any more. Swedes are kind of common, but I think it's better to be something. It surely is. How tall you are getting! You come above my shoulder now. I'll keep on growing, don't you think? I particularly want to be tall. Yes, I guess I must go home. I wish there'd be a fire. A fire? Yes, so the fire bell would ring and the roundhouse whistle would blow, and everybody would come running out. Sometime I'm going to ring the fire bell myself and stir them all up. You'd be arrested. Well, that would be better than going to bed. I'll have to lend you some more books. Thea shook herself impatiently. I can't read every night. Dr. Archie gave one of his low, sympathetic chuckles as he opened the gate for her. You're beginning to grow up. That's what's the matter with you. I have to keep an eye on you. Now you'll have to say good night to the moon. No, I won't. I sleep on the floor now, right in the moonlight. My window comes down to the floor and I can look at the sky all night. She shot round the house to the kitchen door, and Dr. Archie watched her disappear with a sigh. He thought of the hard, mean, frizzy little woman who kept his house for him, once the belle of a Michigan town, now dry and withered up at thirty. If I had a daughter like Thea to watch, he reflected, I wouldn't mind anything. I wonder if all my life's going to be a mistake, just because I made a big one then. Hardly seems fair. Howard Archie was respected rather than popular in Moonstone. Everyone recognized that he was a good physician, and a progressive western town likes to be able to point to a handsome, well-set-up, well-dressed man among its citizens. But a great many people thought Archie distant, and they were right. He had the uneasy manner of a man who is not among his own kind, and who has not seen enough of the world to feel that all people are in some sense his own kind. He knew that everyone was curious about his wife, that she played a sort of character part in Moonstone, and that people made fun of her, not very delicately. Her own friends, most of them women who were distasteful to Archie, liked to ask her to contribute to church charities just to see how mean she could be. The little lopsided cake at the church supper, the cheapest pincushion, the skimpiest apron at the bazaar, were always Mrs. Archie's contribution. All this hurt the doctor's pride. But if there was one thing he had learned, 
it was that there was no changing Bell's nature. He had married a mean woman, and he must accept the consequences. Even in Colorado he would have no pretext for divorce, and to do him justice he had never thought of such a thing. The tenets of the Presbyterian church in which he had grown up, though he had long ceased to believe in them, still influenced his conduct and his perception of propriety. To him there was something vulgar about divorce. A divorced man was a disgraced man. At least he had exhibited his hurt, and made it a matter of common gossip. Respectability was so necessary to Archie that he was willing to pay a high price for it. As long as he could keep up a decent exterior, he could manage to get on, and if he could have concealed his wife's littleness from all his friends, he would scarcely have complained. He was more afraid of pity than he was of unhappiness. Had there been another woman for whom he cared greatly, he might have had plenty of courage. But he was not likely to meet such a woman in Moonstone. There was a puzzling timidity in Archie's make-up. The thing that held his shoulders stiff, that made him resort to a mirthless little laugh when he was talking to dull people, that made him sometimes stumble over rugs and carpets, had its counterpart in his mind. He had not the courage to be an honest thinker. He could comfort himself by evasions and compromises. He consoled himself for his own marriage by telling himself that other people's were not much better. In his work he saw pretty deeply into marital relations in Moonstone, and he could honestly say that there were not many of his friends whom he envied. Their wives seemed to suit them well enough, but they would never have suited him. Although Dr. Archie could not bring himself to regard marriage merely as a social contract, but looked upon it as somehow made sacred by a church in which he did not believe, as a physician he knew that a young man whose marriage is merely nominal must yet go on living his life. When he went to Denver or to Chicago, he drifted about in careless company where gaiety and good humor can be bought, not because he had any taste for such society, but because he honestly believed that anything was better than divorce. He often told himself that hanging and wiving go by destiny. If wiving went badly with a man, and it did oftener than not, then he must do the best he could to keep up appearances and help the tradition of domestic happiness along. The Moonstone gossips, assembled in Mrs. Smiley's millinery and notion store, often discussed Dr. Archie's politeness to his wife and his pleasant manner of speaking about her. "'Nobody has ever got a thing out of him yet,' they agreed, and it was certainly not because no one had ever tried. When he was down in Denver, feeling a little jolly, Archie could forget how unhappy he was at home, and could even make himself believe that he missed his wife. He always bought her presents, and would have liked to send her flowers if she had not repeatedly told him never to send her anything but bulbs, which did not appeal to him in his expansive moments. At the Denver Athletic Club banquets, or at dinner with his colleagues at the Brown Palace Hotel, he sometimes spoke sentimentally about little Mrs. Archie, and he always drank the toast, To our wives, God bless them, with gusto. The determining factor about Dr. Archie was that he was romantic. He had married Belle White because he was romantic, too romantic to know anything about women, except that he wished them to be, or to repulse a pretty girl who had set her cap for him. 
At medical school, though he was a rather wild boy in behavior, he had always disliked coarse jokes and vulgar stories. In his old Flint's physiology, there was still a poem he had pasted there when he was a student, some verses by Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes, about the ideals of the medical profession. After so much and such disillusioning experience with it, he still had a romantic feeling about the human body, a sense that finer things dwelt in it than could be explained by anatomy. He never jested about birth or death or marriage, and did not like to hear other doctors do it. He was a good nurse, and had a reverence for the bodies of women and children. When he was tending them, one saw him at his best. Then his constraint and self-consciousness fell away from him. He was easy, gentle, competent, master of himself and of other people. Then the idealist in him was not afraid of being discovered and ridiculed. In his tastes, too, the doctor was romantic. Though he read Balzac all the year through, he still enjoyed the Waverley novels as much as when he first came upon them, in thick leather-bound volumes in his grandfather's library. He nearly always read Scott and Christmas on holidays, because it brought back the pleasures of his boyhood so vividly. He liked Scott's women, Constance de Beverley and the minstrel girl in The Fair Maid of Perth, not the Duchess de Langay, were his heroines. But better than anything that ever got the heart of a man into printer's ink, he loved the poetry of Robert Burns. Death and Dr. Hornbook, and The Jolly Beggars, Burns' reply to his tailor. He often read aloud to himself in his office, late at night, after a glass of hot toddy. He used to read Tam O'Shanter to Thea Kronborg, and he got her some of the songs set to the old airs for which they were written. He loved to hear her sing them, sometimes when she sang, O oh, wert thou in the cold blast, the doctor and even Mr. Kronborg joined in. Thea never minded if people could not sing. She directed them with her head, and somehow carried them along. When her father got off pitch, she let her own voice out and covered him. End of chapter 12 Recorded by Kate Sterner